Welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop as we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold the cassette inlays, or slip out CD booklets, we will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you will enjoy sharing in the memories and insights. If you do, please spread the word and let me know your thoughts at www.backtonow.music.blog or on Twitter with myself, Ian at Pop Rambler. My guest for this episode is Simon Philo. Simon teaches popular music in society and American studies at the University of Derby. And in a 25-year career in higher education, he's made it his mission to introduce as many students as possible to the joy of popular music. Simon is the author of British Invasion, The Cross Currents of Musical Influence in 2015, and Glam Rock, Music in Sound and Vision in 2018. He also presents some wonderful radio shows on Radio Free Matlock, The Children of the Revolution, and also New York-based Stranger Radio, The Sweet Spot, with a particularly appealing penchant for power pop. Simon has also been found performing at the Louder Than Words Music and Literature Festival, and to find out more about his musical passions, he conveniently tweets them all at pop underscore society. Simon, hi. Hi. How are you at the moment? I'm good. These are strange times, of course, but uh, yeah, doing okay. I was looking at some of the courses that you deliver. I'm just going to read some of these out. I'm not going to do a prospectus for our listeners, but I'll just read a few out. American Screen Cultures, The Making of Modern America, Pop Life 1 and 2. This sounds like quite an impressive set of studies that you're providing here, Simon. Yeah, I put a lot of effort into the titles of them. You know, I can't guarantee what's actually found within them but uh yeah i do spend a lot of time thinking about the uh i suppose the byline or whatever the, the title so uh yeah it, I, hope, it must I be, hope that they actually well, do um deliver it must be a great joy to engage students in themes of popular culture that are also great loves of your own absolutely yeah and i, I think actually although i've always had that had that love uh, of popular culture. It was something, it was a drift in terms of what I teach. Uh, from when I started in the early 1990s teaching American studies, the, my focus was on American literature uh, as part of American studies. And uh, But what's happened over time is actually that, um, driven partly by, by students uh, and what students want, um, and also my own interests, there's been a drift towards popular culture and then ultimately in in the 21st century more recently the development of popular music in society as a course um so so it came from uh, a more traditionally academic route um to the position it is in today really which is um uh, yeah that focus on uh, those snappy titles and all that kind of thing <laughs> yeah, yeah do you find yourself inspired and influenced by the students as well I think I think it's almost inevitable, really. I mean, if the, if the if the if the if the course is working in the way that it should, then uh, that will happen because it's about it's a course about how music impacts upon our lives. Um, and whilst there's a historical focus um, on how music worked for you know previous generations in different locations, it's very much about us as audiences um me as an as, as a listener but also of course yeah the students as listeners as well and, and consumers of popular music in particular so so it's almost inevitable that what comes out of that you, you kind of pick up you learn things from students um you come to appreciate as well um because i and certainly in more recent times there has been plenty written about how popular music is less significant and less important in people's lives um but actually i i i think it is still important uh, it's different um you know streaming and, uh, and 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 issues to do with access have changed things it's still clearly very important um you know i i, I survey a couple of years ago suggested that actually while students well, young people, in fact, may not have quite such a strong connection with a particular genre or even a particular artist. Uh, when they were asked another kind of question, you know, could you, how, how, how long do you feel you can go without listening to music? It was still that, you know, 70% or something like that said, 
I, I don't think I could last a couple of days without listening to music. It's that important to me. Certainly, music is prevalent in so many more different ways than it used to be. Um, you know, you can hear music now coming from, you know, so many different places. And I can remember having to, a time growing up when you had to go and find music. It's not as, it's not as difficult to find music nowadays because of, because of it's, it's almost kind of presence everywhere. Well, that's true. Uh, but as I say, I think that the, 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 the availability of it has, doesn't appear to have dulled the fact that people still, you know, young people still um, enjoy music, still feel they actually need music and that music can deliver um, all kinds of things to people. Um, but I still think, I still think that, um, you know, m my course is not purely about the past. You know, it's very much about the present. And, and uh, we do quite a bit of work on formatting and how formats do ha have changed things. Um, but in some ways they haven't changed things. They haven't changed anything in terms of the importance of music in people's lives and its significance. <laughs> Thinking back, I mean, there was there was music in the house, um, and the radio always seemed to be on in the kitchen. Um, of my parents, my mother, my mum was the uh, the I guess she was the she was the music music lover or the music consumer. Uh, she was a big Stones fan, uh, for example. She would buy singles and occasionally albums, but mostly singles perhaps with greater regularity and in greater volume throughout the early years of my life. So we're talking sort of late 60s, early 1970s. I think as she got older and, and more children came along, music did appear to take uh, uh, more of a backseat. Um, so I was born in 1966 and I would say, so I would say that through the second half, as I say, of the 1960s and well into the 70s, there would be, you know, there would be records around. Um, in fact, my mum tells a story from when I was a toddler, which in retrospect offers up a big clue as to um, uh, what I do now, I guess, uh, in which I, apparently I threw a single out of, uh, of, out of my pram uh, that she just bought. Um, so, so once a critic... You know, always a critic. Or Do you know which one it was? No, uh, it was a Tom Jones record. Actually, <laughs> I, I absolutely I can't stand Tom Jones and and never have been able to. So maybe I kind of you made I, the critical choice. And I it, made a critical choice. Yeah, apparently it was a Tom Jones single from the late sixties. Anyway, yeah. and this is uh, actually I remember from what was, it was uh, the Simon Galloway. Um, he was talking about this compilation as well. The one epic compilation that that held particular fascination for me. Um, was that same compilation that he was talking about, I think, in uh, it was a box set of multiple LPs, each covering two years, and the side of each LP would cover yeah. a year, from the late 50s right the way up to the early 1970s. So I bought my first single with my own money uh, in early 1974. It was Sweet's Teenage Rampage, and I, and I kind of loved all that, all that glam pop stuff. I also remember watching Top of the Pops, of course, uh, and I'm sure I must have watched those, those uh, fabled, those iconic early 70s performances, you know, by Bowie and Roxy and Sparks. But actually, the ones I remember are by Sweet and Slade and Mud. Um, so I remember them much more clearly. Um, and in fact, the first of those landmark TV performances on top of the Fops I do vividly remember was Kate Bush doing Wuthering Heights in 1978. And I guess... 1978 was the year that I began my pop life in earnest, really. And, and uh, actually, it's still my favorite pop year, if I, you know, if, I was, uh, if I was pushed. So I started in 78 buying music week in, week out, um, really taking note of the charts um, and getting a bit obsessed with them, really. And in the autumn, I started buying Smash Hits, which begins publication in, in uh, I think, is November or October yeah. 1978. So looking back at this formative time, I think that it really established what kind of relationship with music I would go on to have. Uh, I distinctly remember, for instance, returning from Saturday morning record shopping trips with singles. Uh, and it was pretty much, again, much like my mum, I think, it was pretty much always singles, uh, not Tom Jones ones though, no. um, representing the full range though of pop sounds and styles. Um, yeah. You know, I just as likely buy a disco single as a new wave 45, you know, some ABBA and some Boomtown Rats. Ever. In addition to buying singles, I'd also tape stuff off the radio, of course. Uh, yes. um, no, one's, no one's listening, are they? 
to... No, no. And I think across the episodes so far, we have very clearly said that home taping is killing music. We still fully stand by that. Absolutely. But um, no, yeah. um, nobody, nobody will be checking in with us. <laughs> um, I, I, actually, although there was taping going on, of course, it would only be from one show, um, the Sunday evening chart rundown, which was at the time one of the very few Radio 1 broadcasts that was in stereo. Party time. Right, straight in because there are six records dropping out of the 40, and therefore six new entries. One of Annie's favourites, Billy Joel, straight in at 40 with My Life. I wasn't, and I'm still not really an audiophile, but taping stuff in medium wave. Um, <laughs> oh, even, to, even, even to my cloth ears was pretty unsatisfying. So, of course. What you're doing here is effectively producing your own compilation, your own now, I guess, um, except that you have total, you have total editorial control and don't have to put up with, uh, with Break My Stride or something like that. Yes, um, and we'll come to Matthew Wilder later. I, I, indeed, I, I have, yeah, I have no doubt. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, talking about that um, FM period of a Sunday afternoon because it did, it was like, you know that bit in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to colour? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when, uh, when Dorothy opens the door, there was yep. a bit one, like... One of those films that I teach. <laughs> yes, well, I know. And you can see I've obviously gened up here, Simon, <laughs> to, get, to get some, some film reference in. But um, those, those pips just before things clicked in to FM, yep. it was quite a magical time. And equally, at the end of the chart rundown, when it kind of pipped back to Radio 2, there was almost that kind of back to black and white type thing. When it yeah, kind which, of I can't remember now which way. I'm, I'm, so before so before five o'clock, was it Sing Something Simple that was on? Yeah, and, 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 and I, can, I can hear the jingle. I can hear the theme tune to Sing yeah. Something Simple. Yeah. Yeah, um, so you get the kind of out if you were you, you you if you planned it right, you wouldn't get any of it, but you would you you might get a yeah. bit of that kind of barbershop quartet kind of yeah thing going on, and then uh, and then it would be the chart rundown. Uh, and it sounded like 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 two different worlds, you know. And, and even then, you know, and obviously Radio One at that point, looking back, you know, there'd be the critics of Radio One that it was old school and it was old fashioned and it was run by middle aged men, but mm. it didn't sound like that to us. It sounded very 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 new and very colourful and very bright. It certainly didn't sound like Radio 2 anyway. Um, no, absolutely not, no. And, uh, and I think the chart, the chart which they were, they were bound to, although they kind of influenced clearly what actually made the chart, but at the same time, they had a duty to play what was in the, what, the top 30 or in the, eventually the top 40. So they would have to play the Buzzcocks as yeah. much as they would have to play the Doolies, you know. So, um, uh, so you would hear that. Um, so I don't quite accept that. I mean, that, that smashy nicey kind of thing. Um, I'm sure that, yeah, there was plenty of evidence to suggest that that was going on, but, uh, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't experience it like that. As I say, 1978 was a wonderful year for me because it was so varied and, you know, there was, there was disco in the chart. There was new wave stuff in the charts, you know. <laughs> Looking back now, 1978 seems to have been relegated slightly by its next-door neighbour because 1979, people talk about a lot as being this big year. Now, there's no doubt 1979 is chart, you know, is filled with, with hits. But, yeah. yeah, 78, I think, often gets overlooked. And it's a great year for music. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I, think it, I, I think part of that is also that sometimes there's that disdain of the uh, uh, new wave, as it was, you know, sometimes yeah. referred to, I think, the kind of the more radio friendly kind of version of punk basically. Yeah. And, and I think that that plays a part in it, doesn't it? Cause it was a lot of it about, you know, I mean, it seemed to me that uh, although they were a bit more punk, I suppose that, you know, Sham 69 were always on top of the pops, you know, and uh, yeah. um, it was the year of, you know, Graham Fellows and, uh, uh, you know, Jilted John and, uh, um, but also the year of Kate Bush and also yeah. the year of Wuthering Heights and man with a child in his eyes. And, uh, um, I think it's the it's the it's just that again going back to that Radio One chart show or whatever you know you, the variety that you got um, and it was a it seemed to me to be a level playing field yeah uh, maybe because I wasn't particularly tribal um, but at that point I was you know I was only only twelve um, so I hadn't yet kind of cast my eye around and look for a tribe um, so I, I didn't I didn't mind you know I didn't I didn't have that kind of filter 
um, I just appreciated it for what it was, which is, you know, is it good pop or is it bad pop, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's move along to December 1981. Mm. It's a compilation album that I know is quite close to your heart. It is, it is. I mean, I mean, full albums for this pop kid were a bit of a luxury then. And, and to be honest, I, you know, I like singles so much that I, I wasn't really fussed about LPs. Um, and actually, I'm still very much of a view that, you know, singles are the format for pop. So it's probably inevitable that most memorable, most loved of those, uh, of the few LPs that I actually had was a compilation. And it was Ronco's Hits, 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 uh, which was released, as you say, around Christmas time, uh, 1981, December 1981. Actually, I'd long since lost the LP, but when you invited me onto the podcast, because I'd never forgotten it, I went looking for it, found out the exact track listing and put it together as a playlist. Um, so a compilation as a compilation sort of thing. Um, and listening to this and now too has, uh, has allowed this middle-aged man to escape to uh, <laughs> kinder, gentler times. So uh, I'd like to thank you for that at this point. Anyway, the power of pop and all that, um, thinking back to what I was saying about um, you know, the, the, the course and things like that. Um, so yeah, Hits, Hits, Hits was, uh, was like the nows, the, the sort of usual snapshot of the, of the UK singles chart. So in the winter of 81, the duel would have been uh, Human Leagues, Don't You yeah. Want Me. Um, there were other synth pop delights like OMD's uh, Joan of Arc, Japan's Visions in, uh, uh, of China, and uh, Simple Minds, Sweating Bullet, and, uh, and Dollars, uh, Trevor Horn, Dry Run, Mirror, Mirror. Oh, I remember it, that was probably my, that was probably my favourite track on the actual... Uh, on, on well, let's just pause and celebrate the wonder that is Mirror Mirror because it is an amazing pop track and as you say um, Trevor Horn's dry run for ABC for ZTT for pretty much everything to be honest and so thinking about it the, the, the point I was going to make is uh, um, so so the only act that feature on now two and hits 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 were actually madness but actually Trevor Horn features on um, yeah. as, as the producer of relax uh, on now two and producer of Dollars mirror mirror on on hits 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 but yeah madness uh, the whole album kicks off with it must be love the hits 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 album um, and of course madness do feature on now too um, and I think that they are the only act to feature on both of them and we're only talking about twenty six months separating yeah. or so separating the two bit of Elvis Costello good year for the roses on there as well the pretenders I go to sleep fun boy threes. De rigueur, stab at some apocalyptic pop. The <laughs> lunatics have taken over the asylum. Yeah, uh, I've enjoyed listening to very much. Very current theme, that one as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of apocalyptic stuff. There's quite a bit to be found on the on the, those early now compilations. Almost in '84 was kind of noted for a, for, for quite a bit of that uh, apocalyptic stuff. Red balloons and yeah, um, with, in my eyes and all this kind of stuff. It is very interesting when you watch back 1984 now because amidst all the balloons and streamers and dancing cheerleaders on top of the pops was um, complete global annihilation waiting for us. <laughs> And straight to number one, it's Frankie Goes to Hollywood, brand new single called A Fantastic Song, Two Tribes. And of course, right yeah. at the centre of 1984, you've got that nine-week run of Two Tribes as well, you know. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of gentler times, as I said. So, let's move to 1984 then itself. We're in the spring of 1984. Tell us about what life was like for you, Simon. Well, okay, so taking it from, I'll be very brief, but taking it from, <laughs> uh, from that time of, uh, uh, the time of the winter of Hits, Hits, Hits in 81, 82, and the release of Now To in March 84. So continued to live the pop life I've described by more singles um, than albums, many, many more singles than albums, uh, avidly following the charts, watching any pop that happened to appear on TV. And a tube arrived on yeah. TV late 82. Yeah, or, I, think, I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit more to be seen and to be heard on, on TV. Uh, and of course, buying smash hits and, uh, and less religiously record mirror as well. I was a kind of a, a little bit disloyal to smash hits. I did also buy record mirror because you got lots of charts in there. Yeah. Um, I do think that if anything, through 82 and 83, that relationship got even more intense with pop. Uh, you know, again, as I was saying, I'd, I'd yet to join a tribe, but the closest I, I came was, was with all that great synthy new pop of those two years of 82 and 83. 
ABC, Depeche Mode, Simple Minds, Duran Duran, that kind of thing. In early 84, um, I was a few months short of my 18th birthday. Um, I was in my A-level year at school. Uh, I just passed my driving test. I passed my driving test on the 17th of February, 1984, same day that we moved house as well. Um, just a couple of weeks then before Now 2 comes out. Um, so we'd moved house from a small town in rural Northamptonshire to the relatively bright lights of Northampton itself. Uh, so looking back to those times now, I can see that this was very much a transitional moment for me. A university was beckoning. Um, I moved away from home, of course, to go to university. And also what I was moving, looking back now, what I was moving towards was a, was, was a less pop self at the same time, I think. So as the 80s progressed, I seemed to draw further away from mainstream pop and self-consciously embrace all things indie. Um, hence my flirtation with the only tribe I really came close to joining, which was goth. However, ultimately, as I've said, the pop kid in me would actually win out. And uh, so it, 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 turned out in, it turned out okay in the end, I guess. Um, and more importantly, none of this would make now too any less enjoyable or significant at that time in the early part of 1984. Perhaps because I guess now too was a bit Tr transitional as well uh, in the sense that it reflected that kind of last moment when when pop was genuinely inclusive when you could get the smiths and you could get matthew wilder on the same compilation 1984 as well it's a year that still holds a lot of great affection for pop fans even for those people that didn't remember 1984 first time round yeah. as we start to look at now too or, or even just the whole pop music from 1984 so much of it still gets radio airplay today as well um and i was looking across um you know some of the bigger hits of 1984 um on a, on on any average day across say for example radio 2 you will hear the pointer sisters you will hear cindy lopper you will hear you know all of these songs um so why why does 1984 resonate do you think with so many people my favourite, my key pop years are from 78 to 84, really. Um, I guess that doesn't explain why Radio 2 continues to... I mean, it may be something to do with the demographic, the listener of Radio 2, I don't know. Are they all the same age as me, <laughs> similar age? Um, I think something is coming to an end in 84. Yeah. Um, in terms of pop. Um, sometimes people point to... They point to Live Aid as, you know, for, for all the obvious good that something like that did. It, it, it changes things in terms of pop um, and um, things harden in terms of the, the, the market. And, uh, um, and there's also... A kind of, I think there is, a, there is a sea change in terms of pop. Um, dance music becomes the thing doesn't it i mean as you head in through the through the 80s um the influence of r&b or hip-hop as well becomes uh you know sort of filters into pop um yeah so you don't get that variety for for, for better or for worse you don't get the doolies you know and nope. Uh, nope. and, and uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and however much that is, that pleases me at the same time, it kind of disappoints me in some ways, you know. That, well, yeah, it's, uh, looking back at that Hits, Hits, Hits from 1981, you couldn't imagine a compilation album of that nature existing in 1986. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because it would be more market driven and there would be sections of songs from certain record labels, certain songs that weren't allowed to be on. There would be themes, there would yeah. be TV linked advert songs um there was more of a market whereas the, the, there's and i think yeah that can 1984 is that linchpin of that starting to change now that's what i call music too frankie goes to hollywood culture club nick kershaw including four number ones, all on a new double album or cassette. So now to released 26th of March, 1984. Yeah, um, nine days after I passed my test. Not, right, excellent. <laughs> Did you own the copy? Yes. 
I did, yes, yeah. The only one, the only one I actually owned, a vinyl copy, yeah. Vinyl copy, yeah. Uh, it was number one for five weeks. Um, I think what's interesting, looking back, is, it, well, it's, it's a sequel. It's a sequel to the first Now That's What I Call Music album. And I often wonder if, if there was a plan in place for the series. Uh, you know, I often wonder what would happen if Now One had bombed. Looking back now, it's almost, you know, yeah, how, yeah. how could it have failed, do you know? Um, but the, the first Now That's What I Call Music album does have the catalogue number Now One. So somebody knew this was probably going to work. Yeah. Well, you know, home taping worked. Well, exactly, exactly. And it kind of spins off. And there's a wonderful, on the, on the back of the vinyl, um, there's a wonderful bit at the bottom that says, complete your collection. Now one is still available. You can see that EMI and Virgin were setting up a long game plan here. Was Now One, though, I mean, so you get a snapshot with Now Two. These are the first few months of 1984, but Now One seemed to remember, reached back yeah. quite a way into 83, didn't it? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, yeah. So that might have been hedging the bets a little bit. There might have just been a little bit of concern that actually this will not, you know, we need to kind of farm the whole of the year, 83, because, you know, there's just a possibility that this might not take off. But I think, I think you're right. I think there was no way that this was going to fail. You know. No, and uh, certainly there was a much shorter period of time for them to pick music from here, which actually given that, that you know, I mean, you're only really talking about the first three months yeah. of 1984, um, just about touching 1983 with the likes of Hold Me Now by Thompson Twins and Only You by Flying Pickets, but there hadn't been a branded sequel or series of mainstream pop compilations albums. I mean, as great as Hits, Hits, Hits was, there was never a Hits, Hits, Hits volume two that I'm aware of, because... No, no, no it's surprising, know, isn't it, really? It is, it is surprising, but, you know, you can understand why this took off. But yeah, you're right, now one had a full year to, you know, to pick from, which made it quite a, you know, quite a rich album. But I don't think now two really struggles from only having three months to pick from. No, I don't think so at all. Um... And, and yeah, I, I, I think that uh, there's, it is a grab bag, but, uh, um, but there's more, more, more bangers than clangers. Um, yes. By, yeah. by long chalk. I mean, the ratio, the hit ratio <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is pretty good, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's huge. And actually as well, you know, from a democratic point of view, that ticks all the boxes you, you have got on here. You've got, established acts so you've got your you know you've got queen david bowie paul mccartney's on there all yep. those big acts rubbing shoulders with the slightly newer bands of the 80s although some quite well established your madness and mm-hmm. so forth are on there but you've got the new acts coming through as well but actually you know you say that about the i'm going to use that phrase again more bangers than clangers that is that 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 is the phrase You've got every, every number one from 1984 is on here to this point. Okay, right. Yeah. So, you know, you have got... I'd have, I'd have known that at the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, but I, I suppose from a marketing point of view, that makes it much more easy to sell to people that you have got on here. So you've got... Uh, I'll just check my notes. Yeah. So you've got the flying pickets from the end of December going yep. into the beginning of uh, January. Pipes of Peace, Paul McCartney, Relax, mm-hmm. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and... Nina, Nineteen Red Balloons. So up up to this point, and as this album was released, Nina was still number one. So marketing marketing dream that you have got the number one song, and I think it's still something that the you know the now people try to do to get the number. That's quite one fortunate. Song. It must be quite fortunate though, given that they. So did you say that they were drawing? They were only drawing from certain EMI Virgin at this point, or could no, they draw widely? Because that that's quite. I mean, I know it's only four four songs, but to, to have them available to you when you're compiling is is quite uh, quite quite useful isn't it really well at, at this point obviously the hits album hadn't started you know that hadn't got moving so emi and virgin still had their pick of all the record companies at this point okay so um and on on the again the back sleeve um this wonderful wonderful phrase in the back of the record thanks to the following record companies and labels for their cooperation and help in making this compilation such a success now 
that that against confidence because the album hasn't even been released yet when they're when they're typing that. But on the back, you've got EMI, Virgin Island, our friends at Stiff, RCA, CBS, Epic, Phonogram, etc., etc., Warner Brothers. So at this point, they are still happily licensing tracks from everybody, which mm. again probably is what makes this such a rich album. Standout tracks. What 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 for you? Well, tell me at the time. What yeah. would have been the standout tracks for you? Okay, well, uh, given that, although I may not have known, I probably did know it at the time, I was kind of drifting indie-woods. You'll be totally not shocked to not know... Not shocked? Not, not shocked to know that The Smiths, What Difference Does It Make, was, for me, the standout track, my favourite track then, because um, what I've done is think about then and also think about now, appropriately yeah. enough, uh, whether that is different. Um, in some cases, not. So The Smiths was... was was what difference does it make was my uh, was my standout uh, and actually it, I, I'm kind of well into a, a, an intense 18 month love affair with with the band at that point that would peak I actually saw them in Northampton on the meet is murder uh, tour in the next uh, March March 85 um, Carmel more 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 um, I just love this and I love the I love bad day as well I love the which came before is that right it was a, yeah I think yeah. so yeah yep Absolutely love that track. Um, Fiction Factory, Feels Like Heaven. Uh, in a sense, it's arguably more 82 than 84, I think. A bit of a throwback, really, to the days, yeah. of, days of hits, hits, hits. But, uh, you know, Study a Face and Freeze the Frame. It couldn't be more new ROM, could it, really? <laughs> uh, but, you know, still great in its chilly, chilly, synthy glory. Um, best one-shot wonder on the comp, in my opinion. Sorry, Nana. Um, and Big Country's Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Crossing had been, you know, it was one of my favourite LPs from 83. And when it arrives in late 84, Steel Town's even more impressive to me. It's one of the great lost LPs of the 1980s, Steel Town. Um, so as a standalone single, Wonderland will do. Um, keep me going. And I think Michael Caine as well. Madness is Michael Caine. Um, yeah. Sort of uh, 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 more Get Carter than... Muppets Christmas Carol, really, but it could be sinister. <laughs> but, you know, they had it in them always, didn't they, really? That kind of darkness. They just tended to clothe it in more kind of jaunty songs and tunes. But uh, I guess, again, it, you know, all of those, perhaps with the exception of Big Country, are kind of indie, have a kind of indie feel about them. And as I say, that's where I'm headed at this point. Um, I can enjoy, and I did enjoy, all the tr pretty much all the tracks. Um, but... Um, but it is those ones that, for me, stood out at the time. You mentioned the one-hit wonderness um, of some of the tracks. There are there are some classic one-hit wonders on here. So we've got Nina, despite maybe a, I think I think another top seventy entry, but pretty much a now uh, one-hit wonder. Yeah. Um, and we mentioned Fiction Factory again. That, there's a song you hear still a lot on the radio. Do, well. yeah, and there's a lot of affection for it still. Um, and um, I think it's a it's, it's a great song, and it's and it's endured. Um, it is of its mo of the moment, um, yeah. but I'm sure we'll get on to talk about some of the clangers, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, but you know, if you compare it to the politics of dancing, for example, you could argue that both of them are very very early '80s or very yeah. very very 84 in some ways, but Fiction Factory is just lighter on its feet, really. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, it just, and that's why you don't hear, the thankfully, the politics of dancing on the radio very much. <laughs> no, it's, and... Not even on the 80s channels, you know? Well, no, and... Not for, even on Gary Davis' show. You know? No, for the purpose of research. <laughs> okay, yeah. I went back to have a listen to Reflex again, and actually, you've just nailed it. It's, it's a very... Big capital letters, self-important song. I think any song, any song that it, it tries to ingratiate itself with references to DJs, and I yeah. think it's really cynical. It, <laughs> I well, think it is. I really, you know, if you mention DJs, unless you're the Smiths and you want to hang them, <laughs> if you mention DJs, good chance or radio generally, you're going to get played. You know, yeah. um, because. So, Looking, you know, when you're kind of thinking back, and again, that looking back from 30 years as we are now from this album, um, I always think, right, okay, what's missing from this album? And I automatically thought, It's My Life by Talk Talk would be yeah. such a great swap for yeah. the politics of dancing. Yeah. But actually, you go back to the charts and, you know, those facts and figures tell us that wasn't a big hit in 1984. No. 
equally the politics of dancing. I think I think it only got to 28, didn't it? I know. Well, that's true. That is true. We could have uh, taken a chance on Talk Talk. But it, but it was pushed. It was really strongly pushed. I remember they were on top of the pops more times than they deserved with the chart placing that they had, you know, and uh, and obviously the song itself. But uh, so there was no kind of, you know, they had a lot behind them, but, and yet they could still only kind of drag themselves to 28 or whatever it was in the chart. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's my life looking at, you know, asking what do you think should have been on there? Then um, that was my first, that's where I went to first, really. Um, talk, talk. But, uh, well, but yeah, I didn't make the top 40, did it? So No, it didn't. It didn't. But now that you've mentioned it, let's go there. What, what else would you have put on now too? And you have to swap. That's the deal. Well, I mean, I, I would have, I would have swapped, I would have swapped Swan's Way's Soul Train Yes. Yeah. For um, for politics of dancing. So then, what hyperactive comes after that, which is a great song. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, they are they are kind of different, aren't they? But uh, um, yeah, I, I could put you could put Swan's Way anywhere. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> I actually, might have worked on. Would it work on side one? I always quite yeah. like. I mean, it might work better with Carmel that run. Yeah. Carmel and uh, 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 you know that kind of uh, on that on that side one. Um, Matt Bianco and Carmel, which you know, and I know I know Matt Bianco years later divide an audience, but there was still a bit of there was still a wee bit of a bravery, I think, in actually putting those songs because um, there's a kind of jazz funk sensibility to that. You know, they you know they both featured in in the pop charts, but you know, I don't mind the Matt Bianco one. I think um, you know, we're saying about there's a humanity <laughs> in it. And I'm being really hard on reflex now, but there, there is a kind of human, there's a bit of joy about the, the Matt Bianco, you know, yeah. I mean, it might be a bit clunky in some ways, but it's, it's joyous and, uh, you know, it's, an, it's enjoyable. Um, so, yeah. I actually think both those tracks, the Matt Bianco song and more so the Carmel song, both still stand up today. Yeah. Much, much more than some of those kind of slightly clunky synth pop tracks do i think so i think the carmel one is because it's so i mean it's timeless in some sense because the jazzy kind of you know the, the stand-up bass and all that kind of stuff it's going to be it's probably going to travel better because it's you know it's not as you say not mired in that in it in its time really as a piece of synth pop but you know that fiction factory still still does the job and it's as i say it, it, in some ways it's kind of synth pop by numbers but it still does it yeah. still stands up, but uh, um, I also thought that possibly uh, Style Council, uh, my ever-changing moods. Again, I wasn't I wasn't kind of aware of the kind of the politics of uh, not of dancing, but of record companies and record labels. And I was thinking of Van Halen's Jump. That was early '84 as well, was it? I think. Yeah, and actually, um, that that turns up at the end of the year on the first hits album. But if now okay. two, yeah. if now two had blagged it early, that would have been quite a nice coup. <laughs> The pop royalty on here mm. as well, quite noticeable. And again, you know, not to talk too much about the kind of record company politics, but it obviously didn't do Queen, David Bowie, The Rolling Stones yeah. <laughs> and Paul McCartney any harm being featured on these albums. Okay, I like three out of four of those. Oh, go on then, tell me which ones. Okay, my relationship with Queen is, is, a, is, a, is a strained one. Uh, and, and most of the problems lie with me, not with Queen, I should, it should be said. I've got confession to make, and I'm probably not alone in this, that I've loathed Queen for most of my, my life. Um, and in early 1984, I was in that particular place. Um, they were everything, as far as I was concerned at that point, that was wrong with pop music, because I didn't kind of... As I say, it was, it was my problem, really, I think, ultimately. But they didn't mean it. I didn't think they meant it. I didn't think... I thought they thought it was all a big laugh. Uh, I didn't think they took it seriously enough. As I said, I was drifting kind of in the direction of indie at this point. Uh, so I was feeling this pretty strongly at that point. So I've come to realise, really, that the problem actually lay with, with me, not Queen, because I've kind of loosened up. Uh, I've got less tribal, less precious less uptight about my music. Same reason why I've come to love, love ABBA as well. Um, and when I was writing my book about glam, did I tell you I'd got written a book? Anyway, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Trying to work out what it meant, what glam went, meant and, and what it did, that allowed me to put all this into some kind of perspective, really. Glam both appealed and, and enraged at the same time because in important ways it was anti-rock because it wasn't up itself, really, because it was for joy because it was lined up on the pop side. And, and unfortunately, in March 1984, as I say, I was heading away from pop. And that's why 
yeah, the album didn't get off to a great start as far as I was concerned at the time. So, um, so for, for, as a clanger, if it yeah. was a clanger, then it was a clanger then. Um, as I say, 45 years of my 54 years, um, I've absolutely, I, I loathed Queen. Um, but, uh, but that has changed. Um, the one that I actually, that I see as a clanger now is actually David Bowie's Modern Love. Yeah, a bit, bit contra- I'm, a, I'm a big Bowie fan. I mean, yeah. going back to the glam, obviously a big feature of, it's on the front the cover of the glam book. And I don't subscribe to that view that the 80s were a kind of artistic wasteland for Bowie. Um, you know, it's absolute beginners. This is not America. Time will crawl, that kind of thing. I do think, though, that the whole Let's Dance project, the album itself, is a bit overrated, or is very overrated. The title track aside, it's, it's pretty insubstantial LP, really. Didn't mind it then, but um, I thought you were going to see Pipes of Peace. I'll, I'll be honest. No, I, 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 I loved it. Yeah, still do. Not McCartney. No, it is David Bowie. But uh, <laughs> and the Stones. Um, you know, I think Undercover of the Night's the last great Stone single, really. Isn't it's it? a great song. And, and unfairly maligned. Um, <laughs> I seem to. We were talking about the tube. I think I mentioned the tube earlier. I seem to remember. I think it would have been November '83 or December '83. Muriel, Muriel Gray interviewing the Rolling Stones by video link. And again, I suppose a measure of where I was at and my head was at at this point, she was giving them a really hard time about their, you know, apparently there being kind of shameless kind of exploitation of kind of South American dictatorships and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and living conditions. And they were kind of using it and, uh, to, to, to their own ends. And, you know, I was kind of cheering her on, but, uh, um, you know, thinking about it now, I thought, well, you know, she's, you know, lighten up. Um, but at the time, she was, uh, you know, every student's kind of dream, really. You know, she was kind of having a go at the Rolling Stones for uh, exploiting people's mis- a cheap holiday and pe- other people's misery or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I mean, it's not exile on Main Street, uh, obviously, but all the better for it, I think. And it's not even Miss You, uh, but, uh, but it's still a pretty competitive, you know, pop single. At the time, you know, Smash Hits in particular would have been laying into Mick and Keith yeah. and Thumbs Off Maka and Dame Bowie, all these types. I think I'm getting all my Smash Hits references right. Simon Galloway will check me on this one. Yeah, 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 it was the Dame, yeah. Yeah, it, it was, certainly was, and it was Thumbs Aloft Maka. You know, Maka indeed, yeah, yeah. This, you know, this, this whole kind of group would have been lambasted as being the, you know, the pensioners of pop. When in and Freddie fact, Mercury as well would be that, would be Lord Lucan. And, you Lord know, Lucan, yeah, yeah. Kind of well, you know, so, but again... But, they're rubbing shoulders here quite, quite well with the likes of, you know, the new kids on the block. And yeah, that's what I was going to mention about um, when I was doing my initial kind of checking over now too again, I thought, oh, there's Slade. Oh, brilliant. Throw, throwback to the 70s. And then I actually looked back at the charts of, you know, the 80s. Slade never went away. No, my oh my had been a big hit, hadn't it, before that? Yeah. And, uh, in 80, they come back and they do this triumphant, set at the the reading rock festival and uh, and they're back you know so um so run runaway was yeah it, it was a, a, a part of a string wasn't it of uh, of chart yeah they you know they had a really high performing chart run and then actually they came back with a superb song in 1991 called the radio wall of sound which which is again yeah, yeah. which um if you haven't heard recently is uh, great. It was them and Hot Chocolate, and you think, oh, throwbacks to the 70s, but Hot Chocolate, again, never went away. <laughs> they it didn't just... go away, but unfortunately, that's one of the meh tracks that I have. It's a bit of a clanger. I don't remember it at the time, uh, and uh, I didn't, yeah, I still don't, oh. really. And I've played it, and I still don't remember it. So um, it was a bit of a bit of a nothing, really, track, wasn't it, really? Um, I think the same for me would be Culture Club's It's a Miracle and Snowy White's Bird of Paradise. I think those, those, yeah. those are the trio of tracks that I neither like or loathe. <laughs> they're, just, uh, they're just there, aren't they? You know? And we haven't really mentioned Matthew Wilder. Do we have to? Let's, let's do it briefly because <laughs> I, was, well, I was convinced this man was and is the one-hit wonder epitomised. And I think as far as single releases go, he absolutely is. 
but well, yeah yeah you're going to talk about his uh, no doubt and all that kind of well, stuff i didn't know that yeah that that's pretty much i didn't know that he produced no doubt and i think kelly clark's that, that famous song that he that he wrote for no doubt sounds like break my stride doesn't it it's yeah. the same kind of um te uh, tempo time signature yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's all I was going to say. I'm not going to say much more. There are two wonderful Top of the Pops clips, though, that you can probably find on YouTube from 1984. Uh, uh, I remember them, so I, I was traumatised. I, <laughs> I do remember them, because he looked a bit like Steve Wright, didn't he? He did. And actually, looking back now, there's a weird Al Yankovic look about him as well. He's got there is a weird, yeah, exactly, yeah, because yep. Steve Wright and weird Al Yankovic. Are also... <laughs> Yeah, have to song, be careful. I mean, the song is, I mean, you know, no. I've been listening to it quite closely just to sort of, you know, am I wrong about this? But it's such a limp song. It can barely stay upright. I mean, <laughs> and, and it never has a message been so divorced from its messenger. It wouldn't take much to break his stride, would it? Really? I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. Every episode of, of the podcast, we try to have at least two um, artists who won't be returning our phone calls. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that it will be Reflex and Matthew Wilder for this episode. Okay, yeah. But they do, they do get through, don't they? You know, um, yeah. I played uh, I played a Dean Friedman song on my, my, my um, Radio Free Matlock show. And uh, I didn't kind of copy him in or, or tag him or anything like that. Heard it, heard about it, contacted me. And now follows me, and I follow him. You know, it's Dean Friedman. You know, so uh, um, so you never know. So uh, <laughs> perhaps I should have been, but I'm not really scared of Matthew Wilder. So you know, the Stone Cold classic on it is Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun. You know, yeah. um, and not, we've not sort of mentioned that really. So, no, uh, um, and actually, again, that is another one of these tracks that you never have to go too far from a radio station to hear. No, it never. The gloss never. It never, it never ceases to be uplifting and joyous. And um, Madonna's just around the corner, but Madonna kind of le leaves me cold. You know, yeah. there's something about it, that, about her and about her stuff that is, you can appreciate it, but you don't really love it. I don't know whether you have to be a certain age and a certain uh, whatever, but Cindy Lauper, you just think, well, this is just joyous. This is just wonderful, you know, sort of. Again, I would argue that Madonna never had that carefree joyous feel to any of her songs it's that too, Cindy Lauper gets yeah. in that track. No, no, absolutely not. Even, even if you take something like Holiday, they still sound quite calculated. Whereas well, Cindy, yeah, yeah. Cindy Lauper's track, whether it was or wasn't, sounds completely spontaneous. Going back to Top of the Pops, it might have been that same, uh, same edition that Matthew Wilder was on. There's a great clip of Cindy Lauper where she does oh, the yeah, whole studio. Does bonkers through the crowd and, and she's wandering around all over the place and yeah and it's fabulous and she's gone up and down the balconies and everything yeah. else must have been a nightmare for the camera crew but yeah um and and it is just joyous it's it's mm -hmm. it's like those previous years of top of the pops those 82 83 years yeah. when it just looked like a party but also yeah. the crowd were loving it and it, yeah it's just you know it's a very that's what we were saying about the drift of pop music is something more policed something more yeah controlled um and this is again one of those kind of last hurrahs really of kind of the looseness of it as well i mean it's just wonderful so uh, yeah that that run of nina cindy lauper tracy ullman well matthew wilder and yeah, then well, Company, good, it's, it's actually quite a kind of you know and also a female a female artist run as well which is quite mm. nice to see because you know it's it's quite easy if, if you look around the you know the actual artists on here and the pictures it's a very male dominated album yeah but yeah. actually when when the you know those female artists step up man they're big songs thomas dolby thomas dolby though was interesting and i'm i'm going to name check um um our old friend pete selby who did one of the first um, podcasts mm -hmm. with me, uh, he describes Thomas Dolby as pop polymath Thomas Dolby in one yeah. of his books because um, Thomas Dolby had been pretty much everywhere. He'd obviously been touring with Bowie yeah. um, and played live with him. He played with Howard Jones at the Grammys. Tells um, a great story about Michael Jackson as well. As, that's uh, right. Jackson requ requested his presence and... Yeah. Uh, thought that maybe Thomas Dolby could produce some of his stuff, I think. And, yeah. Uh, He'd been threatening the charts 
Yeah, wind power always made it, and she blinded me with science had kind of done a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it kind of been knocking on the door yeah. and then hyperactive just crashed straight through. And it's, a, it's again, it's a superb track. But actually as well, um, takes, I suppose, we look at now too, this was the kind of zenith of the video pop era as well. And you've got Thomas Dolby right at the heart of that because yeah. um, if you're of a certain age, you hear hyperactive, you see the video. Um, yeah, yeah, which was yeah. so distinctive. And actually, if you look across the tracks on now too, lots and lots of these would have been classed as video stars. Queen, Radio Gaga, mm. Nick Kershaw. I was looking back. Nick Kershaw's video for um, "Wouldn't It Be Good" was directed by Storm Thorgerson, the Pink Floyd. All oh, right, okay. Um, that, that would be actually that would be one of those clangers then that yeah. now I don't see in the same way. I think you know, uh, I kind of kind of appreciate just what a a great pop writer um yeah. nick kershaw is but uh, uh at the time yeah you wouldn't have seen it no, no i didn't no. see it no i didn't hear it that way but uh, so that would be one of those sort of rehabilitated in my eyes or ears yeah. tracks, really. and of course frankie we've talked a bit about frankie earlier we talked about the kind of trevor horn mm. thing coming through certainly one of the acts of 1984 how do you see relax now looking back all these years later does it still um, stand up for me, no, but uh, um, but that might be something to do with just simply just hearing it all the time. Yeah, I actually prefer Two Tribes. I think, and and I don't, and I never got tired of Two Tribes either. You know, it might have been just the constant remixing and different versions of it. I don't know, but uh, Nine Weeks at number one, it still didn't. You know, it didn't get, it didn't grow old for me, and it, it kind of uh, Two Tribes kind of connected with me in a way that. Uh, I suppose as an, a 17-year-old heterosexual male, I didn't really kind of connect with um, with relax, but I could kind of understand the kind of whole nuclear annihilation anxiety. You know, I, I got that. You know, but, uh, um, yeah, it was something that we lived with. I suppose. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, but yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, but I think there was more. There was more of a song. Um, yeah, rather than a groove. Um, and uh, as you know, I'm heading towards that kind of indie, total lack of groove kind of thing. So, uh, um, so, so by the end of 1984, how was your musical listening landscape then? Well, I think so. In September '84, I went to university. I think, I, well, in the first weekend I was there, I got my ear pierced. Um, I was already dyeing my hair black and um wearing makeup and stuff like that so uh, and kind of heading into as i say towards more kind of goth gravitating towards that a little bit more um and, and very much indie um so but i do remember i do remember buying um unforgettable fire um i yeah. think that came out in uh, around the, the week i went to university and as i say steel town was you know my real favorite album of 84 and that came out again in the autumn of 1984 so whilst I was kind of gravitating towards the kind of um, the indie, I, I still have my moments in terms of, well, I suppose they're, they're not pop, are they? They're kind of more rock, but... Uh, um, pop but sensibility, though. The pop sensibility, it was still there. It was never really lost, but, uh, mm. uh, but for a while, it, I, I kind of, yeah, I did drift away quite, quite, quite quickly, I suppose. Um, and the Smiths, as I say, were... A, and The Cure became a real obsession as well. Uh, I yeah. think in the, in the summer of 84, I went to see... I went to see three bands. I went to see Cabaret Voltaire. I went to see The Cure and I went to see The Psychedelic Furs. And yeah. um, so you kind of see where it's going really, you know, and that's yeah. before I went to university and started going to indie nights and seeing bands all over the place. You know, I saw the Jesus of Mary chain very soon after I got to the to university and there was like 15 people in the audience and um, in a, in a kind of, in a flea pit somewhere in the back, back and beyond in Nottingham. And, uh, uh, and uh, they played for 15 minutes and then started fighting each other. And we loved it. You know, it's what, what we come to see really, you know, not, you know, not listening to Beach Boys feedback, but you know, sort of. What is a Jesus and Mary Chain concert without a good fight? It, well, it was, it was just, you know, we'd see read about it in NME. Yeah. And then we, we get there and uh, yeah, lo and behold, 15. It didn't minutes, disappoint. <laughs> Bobby's in the back banging on the drums and uh and um yeah two brothers re just kicked the whatever out of each other after 15 minutes and everybody went home happy you know but, i think though what you're describing is that kind of that 17 year old change that happens in so many music fans because you've kind of described that 
kind of growing up with pop. And then as music fans, we often need to then find our own direction. And that generally involves a move away from pop. Yeah, and, 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 and you tend to, I, th- I mean, actually, you would, we were talking at the very beginning about the teaching and the course and things like that. And I, I, I teach a third year course called The Kids Are All Right, which is about subcultures and movements and fans. And, uh, you know, we talk about the stages through which people go, as you say, in terms of their relationship with music. And, 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 and that involves a kind of uh, a bit of exploration and then kind of a bit of consolidation um, and then a kind of, you know, as, as you move through your 20s, typically you, you, you become less adventurous and you're kind of, you know, there's a super consolidation in your taste. But, uh, but that period when you're kind of late, eight, late teens, early 20s is when you're kind of looking around for something that you feel is specifically, you know, meaningful to you. And, uh, and, and therefore you get that kind of tribal urge at that time and and i and i did it was kind of you know typical really in some ways but uh, uh but as i said I came, came back to came back to pop and can you remember when you came back was there something happened that brought you back to pop or was it just a kind of gradual change or i think i think it was gradual i think at a point you kind of realized that actually i never play the cure you know um or or, or i never play you know, people often say that, I, I, you know, I appreciate what punk did, but I never, I never go home and put some, a punk record on or whatever it is. And yeah. uh, um, I, I, think, I think it was coming through, going through Britpop. I think Britpop in a way was a good thing because it actually brought together Indian pop um, so that indie-ish bands were now kind of at, at the top of the charts, you know, like Pulp, for God's sake, you know, or something like that, you know. Um, but uh, so... So it may well have been that. Uh, now I can't, that's one of those things I can't listen to. I can't listen to Britpop. I absolutely, you know, I've got no interest in it whatsoever, but I appreciate what it may have done actually in kind of nudging me, dragging me back to pop. Um, and it may well be just teaching the stuff as well and kind of um, thinking about it more holistically, I suppose. Um, and more, not just about myself, but also about, you know, um, the way people generally kind of um use or, or or kind of relate to to music um and you think oh yeah you know that i can see that happening as i say with the glam book i kind of it, it allowed me not just to write about glam but also to think about my own relationship with music and and, and, and pop you know because um it kind of it made me see that actually there is this division between rock there's a sense, a rock sensibility, which is, which is all about authenticity, which is all about, you know, um, you know, truth and kind of honesty and sincerity. And, uh, and it's, it's not about artifice and it's not about the bright, shiny stuff. And, and I realized that I actually like the kind of insincere <laughs> pop side of things. <laughs> and I'm kind of comfortable with that, you know, um, and, and, and authenticity, it's, it's a nonsense, you know, um, but yeah, so long answer. But uh, I was a closet Duran Duran fan all the way through that time yeah. when I was a goth. No, this is, you know, and uh, um, nobody understood that. None of my sort of goth friends or, or indie friends or whatever, or they said they didn't understand it. But I, I was still really kind of, yeah. you know, struck on on, on Duran Duran for and, and and never lost that, you know. Yeah. But uh, I just had to kind of play it down a bit, you know. Simon, thank you so much for your time and for revisiting Now Too. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great. It's been uh, really nice to revisit uh, Nuclear Annihilation. What great days. Absolutely. If only that's all we had to worry about nowadays. Indeed, yeah. Just a small thing. Just a small matter of of destruction. Simon, thank you so much. Thank you.